1: Hello, everyone. My name is Bobby Lee Hugh, and I'm the Chief Content Officer at CommonSkew. On today's episode, Mark Graham and I discuss company stores. Now, in case you're new to the program, and in case we haven't met, many listeners will know that prior to joining CommonSkew as their Chief Content Officer, I spent 25 years in the company store model in our industry and have had a hand in almost every aspect, from packing boxes to selling to landing store clients. It's a big topic that my friend Mark Graham and I will tackle today, and in fairness to Mark, Mark has run a creative agency in, in the promotional products industry, which is a different model than company stores. So today, Mark's going to take the, uh, the side of devil's advocate and pro- asking some questions, and we're just going to kick around. What is it about stores that are so uh, attractive, that are so problematic as well? Mark? What do you think when I and I say when I say company store what comes to mind how would you define a company store well, from your perspective
0: I think the I think that here's the first thing that comes to my mind when I hear company store mm-hmm. Um, I I hear dread and stress. (laughs) Those are the two words that I hear (laughs) as as well as potentially opportunity Mm -hmm. and volume. Okay. So those are maybe the good words and then the stress and dread I think are on the the sort of negative side. (laughs) Um, In terms of how I might define it, uh, a company store is quite simply a a program where a company, whether they're large or small, comes to a distributor Mm -hmm. to – Uh, work with that distributor to design a set of merchandise that will be available on some kind of um, e-commerce platform or a website that allows for that company to order approved products, whether uh, they're on demand or whether uh, there's a minimum order assigned to it
1: or whether it's drawn from inventory. Right. Okay. How would you define it? What I define company stores as solving a problem for a customer and the problem that they are trying to solve. They are trying to make the management of branded materials easier. Now, whether that means it's a full-blown inventory program where you're shipping one piece at a time, or whether that is just something as simple as a Shopify-type store that has some merchandise items where the customer can order in bulk, yeah. Um, the, the the model no longer can be defined in the old way of big, large fulfillment programs now because the technology has made so much more possible with the store yeah. model. And so, when I talk to distributors, there's even even when I'm talking to customers or was talking to customers or prospects. Um, we all had to come to terms on what it is that we were talking about so that we could try and find the right solution. So if you're a distributor talking with your customer, you kind of have to unpack what is it their preconceived ideas are about a store and what, what what do they want to happen. But the biggest thing is it really does help solve a customer problem, and it's always around the management of these of these materials. Now, you kind of led me, you set
0: me up here, Bobby, uh-huh. you know, you asked me this question I lead off with something bold about stress and dread and doom yeah. and gloom. Uh-huh. And, then, and then you come in as the good guy and say, <laughs> I see opportunity. I see business branded management or whatever mm-hmm. you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And, and okay, fair enough. You know, you threw me under the bus a little bit here, but, <laughs> no, not at all. But, but, but tell me about, why here's what i'm curious about all right why do so many distributors perhaps you included with your former experience with the amazing robin mm-hmm. get it wrong because it seems like there are way more horror stories way more stories of distributors that are i either a go out of business b they get the the uh, the financial side of the business uh, uh the program all screwed up mm-hmm. why do you hear about that way more than you hear about some great Success story where a distributor lands a multi-million-dollar program at great margins, where there's cultural alignment, no inventory problems, mm-hmm. and the setup of the store is fantastic, and the volume is also fantastic. I never, ever, ever hear stories like that.
1: Right. Well, for the very simple reason, and and by the way, you know the scars I bear. I mean, we've yes. had we've had some uh, really, really difficult programs through the years. The, the simple reason that stores are very complex. And so in, in some models, if you were to run a the old uh, sort of the old-style company store where you're doing warehousing and distribution, you're essentially running a business with three businesses under one roof. You're running a fulfillment and warehousing operation. You're one run, running a, a traditional promotional products distributorship. And then you're running an e-commerce company within it. So right. in, in a sense, I've always claimed – it's just infinitely more difficult, infinitely more problematic. And you're basically running, instead of one agency model, you're running three different types of businesses in, inside, and you're trying to make them all work well together. Yeah. But then you also add, and this is part of the secret of success and the failure of stores when you add that the average transaction size, um, a traditional distributorship that does not get into program business and does not do really small transactional orders. Um, which by the way, I would argue a successful company store doesn't either, but we'll get back to that. We'll get to that in a minute. They don't, uh, you know, they might process, let's just say, for example, they might process a thousand orders a year, or maybe it's, maybe it's 750 or 600 orders a year. Well, if you're in a smaller transaction type business, you're going to, you're going to run four times that amount. So what that really means, like we would ship on average for a long time, our average will maintain around 50,000 packages a year. And Fifty thousand packages. Inside those packages, when I say when I say uh, packages, there's multiple products in in all of those packages. There's fifty thousand opportunities for something to go wrong. So what you're hearing is definitely the more complex and problematic part of the business. And you hear the horror stories, of course. You don't hear a lot of the success stories because a lot of of course a lot of distributors like to suppress those because they don't want to talk about it because there are some very successful programs out there.
0: Right. So what do you? So why don't we jump into some specifics? Okay, I know okay. that there's lots of distributors that come to you, uh, have come to you over the years seeking your counsel because you're you're um, a huge expert on company stores. So you have a distributor that comes to you and says that they've got a quote unquote million dollar opportunity mm-hmm. with a uh, with a respectable brand, and they're really fired up about this potential opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um, And let's say it's one that they're not, um, it's not a client that they're working with at the present time. Um, I know I'm keeping it very vague right now, but what are some of the additional questions that you would ask of that distributor to determine as to whether this was actually a good opportunity that they had a chance to win and also make money from?
1: Okay. The first, usually you can qualify in about Five minutes with a series of questions with a prospect. So with a distributor, I have a different set of questions. With a prospect, and this may help with the distributor question too, with a prospect, you would talk about what is the purpose? Why did they come to you? If they come to, came to you and they didn't use language like trying to alleviate the administrative burden, this is a nightmare for us, this is not our priority, we really want to outsource this to folks who really know what they're doing – When you hear those kinds of words, they're looking for an advocate and an expert to help them with a problem. And typically that means higher margins and and you're a solution provider at that point. They come to you with some typical price objections or – and even if they come to you with, well, we had a store where it didn't quite work, you have to unpack that and find out exactly why. Now, for a distributor, one of the first things I will ask – and this is – I almost always ask, what is the previous history with the customer in regards to their store? And if they have any previous order history, if they have any previous information whatsoever, often what will happen is someone will get involved in an opportunity, and it's not really an opportunity. They've just been invited to the table um, among about 12 other Uh, distributors and they're they're not necessarily armed with enough information. And with the store model, because there are so many aspects like we covered earlier, we've got three businesses under one roof. You've got so many questions. We would have an onboarding guide that we had to create that would walk through a multiplicity of questions that would try and unpack everything from, um, from, from reporting and accounting and how they want the transactions to work. There were just so many questions. So really what I would do with the distributors start, ask a lot of questions. And often I would give them the questions to go and ask, their they're customer, their prospect. Right, right. And now we also have to define the difference between RFP company store opportunities and non RFP. Typically, it's not always, but typically, um, the larger distributors get involved in RFP business. And I've seen most RFP company stores. Now, this is just my, when you call me expert, I have a limited experience, but, but I've seen a lot of RFPs. And a lot of RFPs are really, really bad. And they're really opportunities for you to lose money. Right. <laughs> and so uh, what I look for are the non-RFP type opportunities. And for me personally, there's a sweet spot for stores, and this is just my own preference, and that is the quarter million to half million dollar customer. Maybe up to a million, but once they start doing a million in sales or more, they're typically going to go to an RFP process. There's something very right. similar to it. Yep. Um, To me, the sweet spot was always right under that because it's complex enough for them to outsource it, but it's not so consuming that they're going to consume you as a customer. And so you could manage multiple stores like that. And the other secret, I'm getting way into the secrets, is when a distributor would come to me, I would ask them, what's the purpose for this store? If the purpose for the store is, well... You know, we have a new VP of marketing and he came in and he decided that he wants to launch a company store because they had one at their old company and they want to provide lots more swag for their employees. My first question would be, that's fantastic. Good news so far. What are they allocating per employee for the store? And often the answer would be either I don't know or none. Right. And then your job at that point is to convince the prospect that branded products and swag works at creating brand champions at cultivating brand champions. And then you can use examples to show them how that actually happens. And if they're not prepared to allocate more resources, this store is going nowhere and you're not going to get any revenue. Mark, I'll say this, your pushback on, on stores. I would would say 90 to 90% of the opportunities out there aren't really solid opportunities. Right. Well,
0: I think, I think that the other reason why I, um, I have struggled to really wrap my head around stores. And as you said in the introduction, I I come at this with with a bit of a bias uh, or or maybe experience is probably the better word. Mm -hmm. Um, In that, in in the evolution of right sleeve, right sleeve never identified as being a traditional company store provider. Mm -hmm. Now, have we done stores that are e-commerce enabled? Absolutely, and we can talk about those later. But I think that for me, when I first got into this business, I, um, I chased that business because I thought, okay, yeah. well I can, uh, th- th- these are big, uh, companies in my case, uh, right sleeve was headquartered or is headquartered in Toronto. So there's a lot of, uh, large institutions that are here that purchase a lot of promotional products and right. a lot of the, the typical usual suspects would be throwing out those RFPs. Mm-hmm. And I, could never wrap my head around the list of demands. So this is first of all. Could never wrap my head around the list of demands that were coming from these larger customers that were putting these RFPS together. Right. When I compared it to the kind of business where we had long-standing loyal client relationships that allowed us to do exceptionally creative work, mm-hmm. that also allowed us to make the kind of money that we needed in order to run a successful business. Right. And and all of those things that I was used to with this business over here was not present in any of these RFP type conversations. Right. And so for me, I, I it wasn't in my DNA to really understand that. We and, and in fairness, we didn't have the infrastructure in place to be able to accommodate that. Mm-hmm. I think the second thing that I've learned Um, and and I I feel is very interesting, is that a lot of these larger companies that uh, have uh, purchasing departments that will put together these RFPs um, end up with really boring, this is a general comment, but very boring promotional items that are on their company stores. And and. I I am not pointing a finger at the distributor who gets that business. I'm going to make that very, very clear, right? What I'm pointing my finger at is that that is swag or promotional products that's designed by committee. So it starts off with a purchasing manager that says, here's the price point that we need to meet on this particular leads skew. Mm -hmm. And we may be negotiating a cost plus arrangement. We know exactly where you're getting this product from. So there's no creative sourcing here. And, So they've identified that. So this is a purchasing manager that is now dictating this decision. This is a general comment. Then you've got a marketing team, a sales team, HR team, all these other people that are then brought in to go and weigh in on this. And so you get swag that's designed by committee, which means you're going to end up with a piece of crap for the most part. Now, Bobby, I'm waiting for you to disagree with me because you've got a lot of experience here. So that's the second thing. Mm -hmm. So then I find that these companies – these big prestigious companies that no question have a multimillion dollar program that has been awarded to a large distributor, uh, that, that, that has a business now comes to a company like right sleeve and says, okay, we now need some really great creative merchandise because everything that we've got on our intra or on our intro web here mm-hmm. sucks. Mm-hmm. And this is coming from the creative teams or the marketing teams or the events teams mm-hmm. that are really trying to push the envelope and they can't get anything from the incumbent. And I look at it and I go, well, it's not really the incumbent's fault. Um, (laughs) they, they, They haven't really been given the opportunity to flex their creative muscles because they've come up with this very bland program that meets the general needs of the committee. And we're very happy to take that business because we can come in and get a nice chunk of business that allows us to flex our creative muscles and we then look so great compared to this incumbent so that's been our experience Mm -hmm. and i look at it and i go i don't want that business at cost plus whatever i'd rather come in and be this almost a separate company that's not even seen as a promotional products company that's doing the lame company store yeah I want to be the savior in White Knight that is able to put a very good name on the medium that is being produced. Right. So that's the baggage that I have around promotional products. Right. Uh, sorry, company stores, and I'm not sure that I've ever seen a great example of where one really nails it from a creative perspective as well as a profit perspective. Yeah.
1: So it's a great. It's a great concern, and you know what you're doing. You're, you're finding even with these embedded. Distributors with a program, you're finding a way to steal business or get earned business away from them, even with a fairly, you know, embedded operation. What are the? You're definitely hit one of the problems, and I think you could almost point to any store and say that all I've seen. I've seen some amazing creative stores. So, in my mind, when we say stores, I don't think of um, a forms based store. I would say the majority of the stores that are out there, Mark, is you are exactly right. What's happening right now? What the trend is is that buyers are getting you know buyers are getting younger um, and and buyers are staying the same age basically, and we're getting we're getting older. The folks that are doing these programs, and so what's happening is they're bringing their retail experience and they're coming to their store providers and they're wanting more. Yeah, what you are actually seeing right now is a lot of distributors stepping up to that game, and not to just pitch Shopify, but you're seeing more Shopify esque type asks and demands than you did before but let me let me also say for a minute and and sort of defend the traditional program that might have some boring products in it Um, there is a multi-million dollar program and i knew the distributor that ran it ran it for nine years and there were 15 products that drove 85 percent of the business now, when you're, when you're running a program for nine years and it's multi-million dollars wow. and there's 15 basic products that are driving 80%, 5% of the business, that's some really
0: good residual business. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Now, I will tell you this. In order to keep the store fresh, this distributor had to launch over 100 new products every year. So get right. that. Fifteen percent of the of the transactions were based around those hundred products that just helped the uh, constituents feel as if they had new products that were coming at them all the time. That was actually what you had to do to earn and keep your stripes in terms of working with that particular client. But right. but what happens with a lot of us that are in that space, a lot of us that were in that space, is that they will um, they will be an anchor and an embedment within that customer, and they're making good money on a lot yeah. of that a lot of the quarter product.
0: I, do, do you buy the argument um, that a lot of distributors will make the the program type distributors will make that they they work their butts off to get the company store business? It may not be great margins, it may be a ton of work, but the gravy is all in the custom dropship. So oh. if it's a you know a two million dollar opportunity, there may be three hundred grand that goes through e commerce, totally. and then the rest is all custom dropship.
1: Completely. Is that true? Absolutely. Does that always happen? I think it I, I've always, but I would definitely say probably the majority uh, of, right. it, of it happens now. Now, the other thing is, is what's transpired too is that that dropship business used to happen offline almost exclusively. Now the model has morphed into where um, y- you are getting that dropship business through the store.
0: Yeah, yeah, and so yeah, that's true.
1: So now there's no longer a distinction. And it's no longer the us versus them. Now it is a way to gain it. So let me give you an example, Mark. We came up with, I, I, we really were getting beat at that battle. We were, we were the ones who were getting the problematic complex orders on the fulfillment side. Right. And we were getting, we were missing out on the gravy dropship. So we actually came up with a minimum purchase agreement with customers and drew a line in the sand and said, you're going to spend a minimum of this threshold, or we're really not going to continue your store with you. And, I was shocked, quite honestly, at the response that we got out of that because you do end up becoming a partner with them because you end up knowing more about their business than any other distributor that's doing business with them because you're just, you're interacting with them a whole lot more. So you almost by default have to learn more about their business than anyone else. So that gives you a distinct home field advantage. And now if you can actually contractually obligate the customer to spend more with you through the dropship, then you can win. Now, I will tell you this. You still have a lot of work to do on the creative. You know, you still have to step up your creative game considerably. And I would say because we were were a traditional fulfillment company, we were weaker on the creative merchandising side. But that was starting to come along. You know, we were really starting to develop that a whole lot more.
0: Yeah, that's um, yeah. I think I, I I think that that's the silver lining. Mm-hmm. Um, your minimum. Store uh, volume agreement. I think it was really a stroke of genius because what it does is it puts um, it sets the expectation with the customer upfront. And I I, I also wonder whether some honesty with the account uh, around the difference between uh, the, the the profitability opportunity on the traditional company store business versus the dropship. Like yes. whether you could just be upfront about that and Go say. Sure. Listen. At the end of the day, that this company store program is going to be pretty time consuming, and unless it hits this particular threshold, it's not going to make sense. Yeah, Um, you know, it's interesting. I was speaking uh, with our good friend Jamie Mayer with Swerpoint, and I remember I was talking with him um, a a, a while ago about a a program, um, or sorry, about a, a really sexy company that he was doing some business with. Um, or was looking to do some business with. I'm not. I'm not sure what the status of the re- relationship was, but it was like one of these companies where you go, "Wow, like they're going to produce some great merchandise, and this is going to be a great retail-oriented experience." Um, what what a feather in your cap. And I remember he looked at me and said, well, "Are you crazy? <laughs> this is a nightmare. Um, we're doing all this work, and at the end of the day." we're going to do maybe 200 grand worth of business because it's not, there's no budget that's assigned to this for, uh, for staff to purchase the products. Yeah. And as a result, it's a, it's a relationship that we had to sever because there just was not the volume there. And I thought that was really fascinating that it was basically amounted to an ego store. And I think you've used that word before. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, and I, and, and so as a result, he's been an advocate for, maybe slightly less um, exciting stores but ones that have got huge volumes and if they can be efficient on the back end. that's really where they, where the revenue opportunities yeah, are
1: lately. And you covered two really big topics there. One is margins. And so, yes, I, I would get, I would talk with the right prospects, with the right customers. I would talk what our margins actually are in the business, what we will, what we will strive to maintain with them as a customer. And then I would also discuss what percentage of business are we getting in terms of their, but I've actually had customers sit down with me and say, here. Here's what we spent last year. We're transitioning 80% of it to you and 20% we're going to keep with XYZ Corp because we have to have more than one vendor. Okay, great. Yeah. But that was a better conversation than us getting 20% of the crap orders and none of the dropship. So that was a nice evolution. The other topic you touched on there is huge for stores. So when you ask me when a distributor comes to me, I really tried to... Pester them questions on how is the how is the brand going to use the merchandise? If it's just an employee store and they are not allocating a, a lot of money, I don't mean a little bit. I don't mean a pittance. A lot of money per employee for uh, to to cultivate brand champions. Then run. Now, if they are going to create a store where they're using it as a conduit for sales and marketing materials, what you've done is you've you've gone from having a fifteen or twenty or thirty or sixty dollar per transaction store with an employee store to a could be $1,500, uh, you know, thousand because they're doing dropship merchandise or they're doing they're you know, maybe that you're doing print and promo and you're actually going through a lot of material. So that the average yeah. transaction size is bigger. So it really does go around to the purpose. What is the purpose? What do they want it to do?
0: Yeah. Uh, I, and I think that, 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 that is really the best question of the entire, uh, or the best point of the entire episode, uh, so far, I'm about to make a really good point, but <laughs> okay. but so far that is actually bang on, and I think I mean that that applies to non-company store business as well. You're oh, just sure. sitting down with a customer who says, "Hey, we've got yeah. a trade show. We're looking for promotional products ideas." If 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 that's where it ends and there has been no probing beyond that, then you as a distributor is doing yourself a disservice, or so you're leaving money on the table, or you're leaving yourselves open to, to to getting your order scooped. Right. Okay, so yeah. let me let me ask you this question. Okay, so we've been talking about getting, uh, um, avoiding mistakes, getting into new company store opportunities, like the things that you should do well. Um, what do you do in this particular case? So let's say I'm a $15 million distributor. So, uh, uh, certainly a bit on the bigger side and I've got a $3 million company store. Okay. And I've been doing business with this company for, I don't know, six or seven years. Okay. And and it's to the point where my identity as a distributorship is somewhat wrapped up in the fact that I'm dealing with company X. Okay. A prestigious company at that. Right. And I've got uh, a, a, I've got an infrastructure around this. Uh, I've got a company store, um, uh, online services manager that handles this business. I've got uh, a couple of reps who are in on it. And if I was to be really honest with myself It's not really making me a lot of money, but the $3 million is a pretty hefty percentage of my revenues. And, and I still have convinced myself that I'm better with it than not with it. Right. So the question for you, and, and hopefully, and maybe that story applies to some people that are listening to this. Um, how do I either a extract myself from a bad company store relationship at the time of renewal? Yeah. Without losing the business, like how do I convert something that's kind of crappy, like a low grade headache, like you had last week on our podcast. (laughs) That's right. Right. To something where you at the end of the day can be making good money. Yeah. Um, What are the things you need to do? so you don't lose that business or your reps. Yeah.
1: The good news is you have a great opportunity because you are the incumbent. So, uh, the beautiful part about stores is it's very hard for the customer themselves to extract themselves easily from the relationship as well. So yeah. you have – you come to the table with a very strong negotiating chip. Yeah, good and, point. And most corporate – corporate buys safe and corporate um, it, it does not like change. So most B2B buyers really do not want dramatic change. By the way, as as a sidebar – the most vulnerable times when you ha- you have an existing company store client, their most vulnerable time for you is when they're doing branding change. But that's not something we're talking about right now. Um, you have an opportunity because you're the incumbent. So the one of the problematic areas with stores is, and our entire industry thinks this way, we think in terms of gross sales. That's how we measure everything. We, we, it's, so it's, it's two odd metrics, really, in our industry. One is gross sales. One is headcount. I've never understood the headcount thing. But um, gross sales is also just the metric. Now, na- naturally, that's an easy metric for us to point to, but really, when it comes down to stores where you've got so much more operational expenses involved, it's a it's a profit question. So you know you really have to analyze uh, to your point mark, let's say let's say you've got average margins, but you've got, You've got probably way too much in the commissions going out to the folks involved in it. So that right. there's, in fact, that's one of the most problematic areas in stores. Salespeople hate to hear this, but typically they have to be resolved to give more on the commission structure so that they can retain a client longer. Because the bottom line is if you get really greedy too fast, you're going to lose the customer because you're not able to invest more profit into the infrastructure of the business. Right. So, uh, you know, I know um, out at uh, Shumsky, my friend Mitch Emhoff, he does a really good job of working, walking with sales reps through the actual costs that it takes to run these programs, and he can he can help. It actually helps back in with them the long term, uh, lifetime value of this customer based on those uh, numbers. And what he can prove is actually you're going to make more money in the long run, and you're going to keep this, and you're going to have security, and you're going to have. Uh, a, a bedrock and a foundation to build upon. But back to your back to your question mark, you have kind of a couple of things you get addressed. You've got you have an opportunity to increase margins because you are embedded with a customer. You have an opportunity to increase margins. Now there's some contractual obligations that can keep you low. So if you've signed contracts that already keep you at certain margins, that not there, there's not a lot of good news except for in that profit sharing. Right. So when you look at the share of profit, that's where it actually gets really hard for most of us, myself included to make the really difficult decisions of trying to adjust things for the health of the business overall. Um, and and it's probably the hardest part about stores is most of the tasks involved are things you can do. You can figure it out, um, and, and it's complex, but you can figure it out. The emotional part of it is the most difficult part. And uh, go ahead.
0: Where do you think the opportunity is for distributors today in – in, uh, in their business models. Uh, and I, I know this is a really big question, right? Or maybe another way of asking it is knowing what you know now, if you were to be starting a distributorship, would you, uh, a create a creative merchandise agency on one hand, or would you go and pursue the company store business, but pursue it with, um, with, with, with a focus on getting the numbers right and really making sure you took the right business? Um, or would it be a mix of the two? Because I'm, I'm hearing everything that you're saying, but I also know that you've got a lot of gray hair and baggage (laughs) literally (laughs) from, from, from your past experience. And I think that if, if I was to sit down with you, even without this being recorded, yeah. I would get two answers out of you, okay? I would get, on one hand, you would say, oh my gosh, company store is the absolute worst. You shouldn't get into them. And I think you even did a SKUCon workshop where that was kind of your point. Yeah. Um, And, but then on the other hand, if you're speaking to like a Jamie Mayer or a Larry Cohen or a Mitch Emoff or any of these all-stars in the company store space, Mm -hmm. you'd probably be waxing poetic about how amazing they are. So (laughs) my question to you is, what 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 is the right thing for the the distributor of today yeah. to get into to build a fast growth sustainable
1: profitable business? Yeah, Great. what would you do? Great question. So here's what I would do. The company store model is not going away. The demand is going to keep getting larger because um, younger buyers are used to the Amazon experience. So folks will ask me, you know, when is Amazon going to disrupt this business? They're already disrupting the business because they're, because buyers bring with them their expectations on how transactions should be done. Yeah. So that affects everything from technology to distribution. But you asked me, what would I do? I would do kind of what I was doing toward the end uh, of my tenure there with Robin. And that was, we were saying no a lot more often. And we were only saying yes to the opportunities that fit well. That was one thing, is because because an opportunity is at your doorstep does not mean you should take it. And you often, you you know, my no to prospect was really fast. My yes or slow, uh, my yes to prospects was really slow um, because you had to do a lot of analyzation. But I'm going to ask, answer your question. I would create a hybrid of the two and create a fashion forward merchandising opportunity using something progressive as my technology partner, and I would probably do everything I could I could to stay away from the actual fulfillment. If I did have to get into fulfillment, I would outsource it, but I would actually try to do it without it, which today you can And that's the beautiful part about stores is that, that you do have an opportunity with so many suppliers that can ship on 24 turn and the minimums have gotten so low. And there are distributors that are actually excelling with this model right now as we speak. But I would kind of create, knowing my background, I would kind of create a hybrid of the two. Where I would right. have fashion forward, fashion forward merchandising plus um, all dropship type programs and and build it accordingly, right? And I would and the more problematic stores, the more the large fulfillment low transaction, I would I would typically stay away from. Um, and I think the you know the, what happens when you start doing these is you get more opportunities for them. And here's the like this is the secret to stores is all of this generalization we're doing, as you and Mark, you and I know, we're all around this topic and there's so many things to talk around um, that we general, you generalize too much with company stores. We all do. And yeah. every store has to be evaluated on its own merit. I would always say that to my own team. Every store has to be evaluated on its own merit. Every opportunity has to be evaluated on its own merit. You can't broad brush um, the store model at all. But the very fact that technology is going to keep becoming a solution uh, that customers want because they're experiencing that in their personal life means that we have an opportunity before us. We just right. have to make sure we craft it according to our values and to customers that are going to value what we do. Right. I, I, that's, that's
0: a slick answer, my friend. That's slick. <laughs> you didn't I,
1: expect that, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I,
0: well, I expected something, you know, poetic and wordy, yeah. but uh, <laughs> you know, that exceeded my expectations. Um, I, I think, I think that you make, a very good, valid point about the access to new technology today that makes, um, working in the store business so much easier yeah. than it ever has been. Right. Okay. So if if you were to think, um, of your experience when you first got into the business, you know, 20 years ago and you were doing store, you've been doing stores for a long time, right. That the, the software and, and this is technology in general was a lot more primitive, yeah. and, but that's what you grew up on and you perfected those systems. So if, if you're now Bobby, 25-year-old Bobby, and you're getting into this business, yeah. chances are you're not using the technology platforms that you grew up on. Right, just because either they're too expensive, they're too clunky, they may be a little bit outdated, and you're you're likely starting to look at some of the more B two C type platforms that are out there. Shopify is an example that we have used. Um, you know, Magento I think certainly has got some some interesting things. I think Magento right. is a little bit clunkier than Shopify, from at least what I understand. Right, um, but just the ability to tap into these huge developer communities and designer communities. On these technology platforms that are built for world-class e-commerce, that is a unique—that's a unique opportunity that exists now and maybe the last couple of years, but yes. certainly not ten years ago. Right. And if you look at the lions of our business in the company store space, and I'd be interested—maybe you'd speak to them in another episode because they might call me on all my BS here. Um, the, the, the the huge players in the company store space. Are all for the most part are companies that have been around for at least ten to fifteen years, if not longer. Um, And there's not a lot of them that are in the company store space that just started three years ago. Yeah, Um, that that's almost unheard of. And they are they're they're operating in an entirely different segment of the market. You've got people like, um, you know, Casey Shore and what he's doing. He's not really in the company store space, but he's building a technology platform that is reinventing how that space works.
1: Yeah. And you know, there, um, there's a great example by the way of, of him solving a customer problem. That's yeah. what he's doing with technology. Right.
0: And so I, I think that's just really interesting. I think that we're going to be, I think we should keep our eyes when I say we, I mean, we as an industry should keep our eyes on who those next generation players are in the yeah. company store space. Um, I have no doubt in my mind that some of those next generation store people will be people that have been successful to date yeah. Um, because there's some really smart people that are in that space but i'll be fascinated to see who the 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 25 year old that's getting into this space that builds uh that lands the microsoft or the google or the ibm store one of those like old dog kind of programs yeah. lands them because of a new approach to technology that Um, that, that takes out one of those incumbents. I think that'll happen. I don't think it has happened, but I think it will happen.
1: Yeah. By the way, Mark, one, one question, um, that's a really good point. One of the, one of the question I get the most in the industry that we kind of touched on but didn't really answer directly. The question and scenario I get the most is a distributor comes to me and says, I have an existing customer that I'm doing some fantastic dropship business with and they've now asked me to do store. And it's such bad news for them that, you know, that's just nauseating them because they're like, where do I begin? What do I do? And my answer would often be twofold. One, keeping in mind, um, I didn't come to the minimum purchase agreement until much later in my own uh, tenure in this. But for the longest time I would tell them, don't worry about it. You don't have to take it to keep the customer. That's what's surprising to a lot of folks um, is that you don't have to take the business to keep the customer. Now, most of us, myself included, still get nervous and, take the, and, and chase it just because you, you don't want to even provide any other competitor to that kind of an anchor. But the good news is now that I've thrown out the minimum purchase agreement secret, you can contractually organize it to what two things. One, you can, this is a whole new set of, of services you're going to provide to this customer. And the dangerous part is where distributors either give that away for free entirely or they don't tell the customer the value of what they're providing for them. So they just sort of treat it as a loss leader instead of an opportunity. And they'll say, okay, we'll do all that for you. Um, and, and they'll do it to keep the account. But they don't sort of come in with any any uh, requirements. They don't come in with any value like a price tag. Literally, we're going to build this to you, for you. Here's what it's going to cost. Here's what we hope to gain in terms of additional revenue from you to pay for it on one hand. Or we're going to actually charge you the fees. So my point is there's really a lots of opportunity here. And it's not going to be easy. It is going to take some work. Um, but you can negotiate because the customer already has the one thing that is so hard to get. They already have trust established with you, right? And you have a fantastic opportunity because of that, right? Yeah,
0: no, I I, I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, so, I mean, Bobby, just in our in our uh, final moments in this uh, this week's discussion, um, where have we landed? You know, uh, we, I think we've condemned company stores. I think we've celebrated them. I think that we've you know, acknowledge that yeah. there are some people like kind of like a bad relationship. Sometimes you just get into a bad relationship. You can't, you can't get out of it, right. but it's, it is what it is. Right. Um, wh- like what, uh, what kind of direction do we have for people that are listening to this in terms of the next step that they would take, uh, when, uh, a fancy company waving a $3 million PO or sorry, a $3 million RFP comes at them. Um, should they should they run or should they uh, stay put if they're asking the
1: right questions as you say unfortunately we're doing it i do it every time and that is we're broad brushing the experience there's no easy answer really the only answer is evaluate every opportunity on its own merit and that's the only reason by the way the only reason you sort of start carving this niche or niche in for your, if you're candidate in, in thank you for your business the only reason you start carving it is because you start providing the service to more and more customers that ask for it. They sort of drag you into it and you sort of do it. And if one day you wake up and you go, we have a very unique value prop here because we've done more of these for customers. But if you are if you have that opportunity land on your, your desk and it's a first time, you have to evaluate it on its own merit. You can't say, we're going to carve an opportunity in this space and we're going to start with this opportunity here because it may be a bad opportunity to start with and it may set the whole tone for some of your right. future business. So really, it's... It, if my, my one final word of warning is, and, and encouragement is evaluate everything on its own merit. And uh, number two, look at everything as an opportunity because you can actually hang on to these customers longer than with any other model, and you will have time to evolve and improve the platform as you work along.
0: That is a great way to end things. Um, <laughs> um I think at the end of the day, you're right. They, it, it is it's not black and white. There are shades of gray, but my my sense is that if a distributor can go into an opportunity without desperation and they can go in with confidence that they're uh, able to truly offer value and they can ask those right questions and they're using progressive technology platforms in the in the e-commerce space, then I think that's when they have an edge. I, I think yeah. that when they come into it. When they're on the ropes, when they need that revenue figure because they've right. got an investor or a bank to to keep happy, um, and they're they're just doing the same old, same old. I think that's when you've got a recipe for disaster. Right. So, right.
1: Well, man, Mark, thank you so much. I'm glad we opened up this conversation. Um, it's it's really good. something. And of course, you know I could talk about for hours, which we won't. Uh, yeah, thank, thank goodness. I'm glad we have the opportunity to do it. This won't be the last time we talk about this because I think anything that has to do with technology is where we need to keep having conversations in this industry. So thanks to our friends for tuning in to us this long. We hope to get more information like this out to you soon. You bet.
0: Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Skewcast. Be sure to keep up with our latest content by subscribing to Skewcast on iTunes or to our blog at community.com commonskew.com. Until next time, friends, thanks so much for listening.